This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Vincero Watches. Vincero makes super high quality and amazingly crafted watches, and by cutting out the middleman and selling them directly to you on their website, they are saving you a lot of money. With Christmas right around the corner, there is never a better time than now to tell you that by using the promo code CHEF at checkout, that's C-H-E-F, you can save 20% on your entire order. To use the promo code CHEF and save 20% on a Vincero watch, head over to VinceroWatches.com. Before we get started on this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I would very quickly like to say that this podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and pretty much everywhere else you can think of to listen to podcasts. So if you can take one second of your time to rate or review the show, or even just to tell a friend about it, we would really appreciate it. The only reason that Let's Talk About Chef is listened to in 50 countries and almost 300 cities around the world is because of listeners like you, and I want to thank everyone for continuing to spread the word about it. If you want your favorite restaurant or dive bar or whatever shout out on the podcast, you can write to us for that or any other reason to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram and DM me at Chef Brian Clark. I do take the time to read and respond to everyone, and I really enjoy hearing from listeners. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It's easy to forget where all of this came from. It's easy to get lost in the never-ending shuffle of Michelin stars, fancy Instagram posts, and endless streams of small plates, bone marrow, and craft cocktails. The world of restaurants has changed, and in some ways that's a wonderful thing. In some ways, as we move forward into uncharted territories of internet recipes, a dining public whose tastes change faster than ever before, and also a dining public who are more open and willing to eat different types of food than ever before, I find myself working in a world where I can do and cook quite literally whatever I want. Restaurants have changed so much over the last decade. Words like fast casual have become commonplace. Food critics have a never-ending stream of new and exciting restaurants that they can shuffle around on their best of or best new restaurant lists, deciding which one of these hundreds of places that can shuck oysters or sear foie gras the best should be at the top of the pile. Our televisions and computers are filled with shows about food trucks, pulling food from baskets and making a meal, and ridiculous chef competition shows. And it was all moving forward. Everyone's trying to find the next big thing, the next buzzworthy plate, the next hip chef, the next Rene Redzepi or David Chang. And then something strange happened, something that I have thought a lot about since it did. Roaming food critic for Eater Bill Addison released his annual 38 Most Essential Restaurants list last year. It's an annual list, for those of you who don't know, of the 38 most important restaurants in America. And it, of course, contains staples like Momofuku Co. in New York, Atelier Kren in San Francisco, Franklin Barbecue in Austin, and every other restaurant you would expect to see on a list like this. But then, nestled in between the titans of our industry was a restaurant that nobody recognized. 
It was almost like it was put there on purpose to confuse us. Put there to shake things up. And it worked. Bill Addison had named the Palace Diner in Bidford, Maine, which has a population of 20,000 people, as one of the best restaurants in America. This, of course, caused me and thousands of other chefs like me to instantly Google whatever the hell the Palace Diner was. It must be a hipster place, I remember thinking. Maybe some chef who cooked at Blue Hill at Stone Barns decided to put a twist on diner food. Maybe they shave foie gras on everything. Maybe there's an in-house coffee roaster that talks to you about the ethical treatment of the workers who pick the beans while they refuse to serve you cream with your coffee because it would compromise the flavor of the roast. The Palace Diner was none of those things. The Palace Diner is a diner. It's a 15-seat old train car on the side of the road that is only open from 8am to 2pm serving breakfast and lunch. It is as close as you can get to what a diner was before fast food, Instagram, and quite frankly podcasts like this one casually shoved diners off to the side in favor of eating organic oxtail with frizzled onions. To be entirely honest with you though, seeing a diner on that list made me so happy. It made me glad that this tradition of food, this idea of comfort food, of a place to go and get eggs and bacon or a tuna melt was considered to be important. I love diners and I love eating in them. I love watching the flat top searing hamburgers, getting treated slightly rude by a gruff, angry elderly waitress who still looks mad that she's not allowed to legally smoke cigarettes inside anymore. I like to annoy my wife or friends when we're driving in the States and make them pull over to eat in them. Diners are magical, and diners are disappearing. Today on Let's Talk About Chef, we are talking about the history of one of the best things to ever come out of America. One of the reasons that we eat the way we do, something that has been immortalized in paintings, movies, and songs, and something that I honestly hold more dearly than most things in my life. Today on Let's Talk About Chef, we are talking about the diner. The diner began because of one man named Walter Scott. He was working as a printer in Rhode Island and would sometimes work late into the night. When he finished printing at the factory, he would walk home past the closed-up delis and sandwich counters, hungry, and he finally decided that if he was this hungry late at night, then other people would be too. 
He bought a horse-pulled wagon, outfitted it with a small counter, a coffee pot, and some food, and started to roll around the area at night when everything else was closed. The idea was brilliant, and suddenly Walter had more business than he knew what to do with. Hungry factory workers, policemen, and night owls would line up to grab a coffee or sandwich from Walter who had accidentally invented the idea of mobile dining. It didn't take long for businessmen to realize that this was a great way to make money, and pretty soon companies were building and selling food wagons to entrepreneurs who would take to the streets to sell to the working class. These early food wagons usually had frosted glass, a basic stove, an icebox, and by the year 1900, there were three lunch cart manufacturers, the Worcester lunch car, Tierney, and O'Mahony. The lunch cart business began to get really competitive, seemingly overnight. There were dozens and dozens of wagons in every city all selling the same thing to customers, and so owners began to decorate and remodel their wagons to stand out from the pack. Stained glass windows, chandeliers, and painted murals filled the cars. Some had elegant wallpaper, wainscoting, and leather seats. The streets would fill at night with these ornate and decorative carts which would provide the late night workers and drunks with what they wanted, food. It wasn't long before the wealthy began to notice something was happening on the street from perched inside their townhomes, and slowly but surely the carts stopped being just places for the poor and middle class. The small counters would have rich businessmen drinking wine and eating sandwiches right next to a factory worker, all getting along and enjoying each other's company. The counter in these small carts became a place where class and social status didn't exist. When the automobile began to overtake the streets of America, the lunch carts became stationary. Owners would mount them to wooden stands on busy street corners. It was a man named John Mahoney who was the first to do this in 1913 in Union City, New Jersey, essentially creating the first real diner. Because of its popularity, it helped spark New Jersey's golden age of diner manufacturing, with the state churning out prefabricated and ready-to-go diners for the entire country. The reason that most diners all look the same all over North America is because you didn't build one of your own. You just ordered one from one of the five companies in Jersey, and it was shipped to you. With most diners being the size of a train car, it was easy to get them around the country. As highways began to stretch all over America, the diners would open along the interstates to feed and comfort travelers who for the first time could travel across the country in their cars, stopping along the way for burgers, eggs, and fries. The menu in these diners was essentially the same thing you can see now. Eggs with bacon and hash browns, milkshakes, coffees, burgers, and the diner staple, pies. A few years later, World War I broke out in Europe, and suddenly the decorations inside the carts began to get more feminine. Flowers and ornate flatware along with advertisements saying how home-cooked the food was to attract the women to come inside and eat. And they did, bringing their families and meeting with friends after work or just to escape for a few hours and forget all of the horror that was going on across the ocean. By the 1930s, the carts were long gone and had been replaced with modern, streamlined design. Train cars were used and remodeled to look like bullets. Chrome was everywhere inside, but still the prices remained low. 
Before the remodeling and futuristic look had become normal, diners had started to fall out of favor with the public. But eating inside a spaceship was cool, and they started to fill up every day from morning to night, most diners offering breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The term short order cook was invented, meaning that it took a short amount of time to get your food. In big cities, diners would be filled with flappers, businessmen, pimps, and prostitutes until all hours of the morning, smoking cigarettes and drinking watery coffee. By the time World War II ended 15 long years later, the diner had become what we know it to be today. Leather booths, porcelain tiles, wood paneling, and formica countertops. As the diners spread from the cities to the new and flashy suburbs that were popping up everywhere, they found a new audience of people they could feed and entertain. And it all started with one song. Teenagers couldn't drink. They couldn't get that rowdy, and they usually went to bed at a reasonable hour. As the car and rock and roll obsessed youth of America started to drive from city to city, diners were where they stopped to listen to music, hang out, and do all the things that teenagers do. In the 50s, with a booming middle class and not enough jobs, opening a diner was an easy way to get into the restaurant business. They offered cooking jobs to convicts and servicemen that couldn't do anything else. They offered jobs to African Americans and were some of the first businesses owned by women in the United States. Menus across the country all had pancakes, turkey clubs, grilled cheese, and rice pudding. As the population began to drive cars more than ever, it didn't matter where you were. You knew that if you saw a diner, you could eat something that reminded you of home. There was literally no end in sight to the popularity of the diner, but all good things must come to an end. The rise of fast food dealt a heavy blow to diners everywhere. America became obsessed with the Golden Arches, In-N-Out's White Castles and Arby's that started to pop up everywhere faster than you could imagine. Fast food restaurants were basically diners. Most of them had started out as diners. But the McDonald brothers had figured out how to make their burgers faster than anyone else by using ingenious machines for grilling, dunking fries, and even squirting ketchup and mustard Speed became what people wanted, and fast food delivered. In 1955, there were only seven McDonald's, and just two years later, there were already 40. Jump to 20 years after that in 1975, and there were 6,500, and there was no going back. 
Every time a new McDonald's opened in a town, the diner that had stood and fed people for decades usually ended up closing its doors. Today, there are over 243,000 fast food restaurants in America alone. Diners and the Americana humble food that they had provided disappeared pretty much by the 1990s. There are a few that have hung around, famous ones, and some in small enough towns that the burger clown and his posse didn't see a point in opening a drive through there. A few diners have become historical landmarks, a desperate attempt to save them by people unwilling to adapt to what modern dining has thrown at them. The diner should have disappeared. It should have gone away. But in the last few years, just like the resurgence of the vinyl record, they have started to come back. Enterprising cooks and chefs have started to open diners everywhere, cooking and serving the classics that were almost forgotten, but with modern equipment and modern plating. If you scroll through Instagram, you can find dozens of diners opening all of the time. You will find pictures of tuna melts and omelets. You will see hot dogs and mac and cheese. A former sous chef from Noma in Copenhagen opened a diner in his small town in New Jersey. He went home to see his family on vacation and found out the diner that had been there his entire life was about to close. He walked through the door and offered to lease it from the owners. Then he called Rene Redzepi and told him he wasn't coming back to arguably the best restaurant in the world because he wanted to save and work in a diner. When Bill Addison named the 15-seat Palace Diner as one of the best restaurants in America, he wasn't just saying that the food was good, that the service was good or the decor. He wasn't comparing it to the menus of other famous restaurants on that list that so many chefs work hard for to try and be on. He wasn't saying that it is perfect. He was saying that it mattered. I don't know if the diner will stick around again. I don't know if the one in your town is worth going to. It probably won't offer you the best meal you've ever had, and quite likely you won't be able to post about your experience on social media. It won't change your life, and it probably won't make you want to be a chef. The music will probably be bad, and it will be a little too close to the highway for it to be truly comfortable. The leather of the booths will probably be cracking. The countertops will be worn down from thousands of elbows resting on them. And hopefully, the waitress will be a little bit nice and a little bit rude at the same time. We don't go to diners to celebrate birthdays. We don't go to them for special occasions. And we don't go to them on first dates. We go to diners because they have the power to remind you of a different time. And somehow make you feel like you're at home. If you go at the right time of night, you will see people from all walks of life there, sitting and eating and drinking. If I'm in your town, I'll probably be there too. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark, and produced by Timothy McDonald. I want to give this week's shout-out to FNB in Walkerville, Ontario. If you are near Windsor or Detroit, you are quite literally 15 minutes away from a restaurant that I hear a lot about, and you should probably go and please say hello from us when you do. If you want to write into the podcast, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at chefbrianclark. I found out yesterday that Let's Talk About Chef has reached 10,000 subscribers and is listened to in over 50 countries in some 240-odd cities around the world. So I want to thank everyone who has shared the show with friends and continues to allow me to talk to you every single week. This show wouldn't be possible without people like you. 
We will be back next Thursday with another brand new episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And so until then, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service and have a great week. Just